0: Welcome to the Deep Democracy Podcast. My name is Ulnelia Rivera, and I'm joined by my co-host and fellow movement sister, Gina Christo.
1: Hello! Well, Nelia and I met working on the IANA Presley campaign, and we spent many hours since then talking about the dumpster fires called democracy across this country and the inspiration we find in the emerging progressive movement.
0: That's what we highlight on this show. These organizers and activists, the heavy lifting of what we call deep democracy, the belief that those at the margins should be at the center and that the inclusion of all voices allows for a more complete view of the system.
1: Let's talk about mayors.
0: All right. I know. Well, so people must be asking mayors, really? Shouldn't we be focusing on the 2020 like presidential watch? Why Why are we talking about mayors, Gina?
1: Anybody who is thinking that really needs to check themselves because that's not where the deep democracy starts. I agree.
0: You know, the best way to prepare for 2020 and the best way to prepare for any presidential year, but even more so this year, is to focus on local elections, mm. to focus what's happening on the ground, mm-hmm. right? Because before you run for Congress, or before you run for president, you gotta run for something at home first. Exactly. Right. I guess some people do run for Congress the first time, but well, hey, we all have a different a different way of doing things, right?
1: But in terms of change, in terms of what affects us every day, it's the mayors mm-hmm. you know that, that really make the difference in municipal government. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of attention being paid to a certain mayor running for president right now. But you know, there's two female mayors we wanna talk about today, mm-hmm. both recently elected. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Jane Castor in Florida, gay lady.
0: Tampa, Florida, everybody. Tampa, Florida. And just so that listeners understand, she's actually the second openly gay mayor in Florida. I forget the name of the first openly gay mayor, but she actually is from Key West. There's been some corrections already made in the media oh, wow. um, to make sure that the mayor from Key West doesn't get eliminated from the from the history in that way.
1: That's very nice.
0: I mean, it's a nice place to be. In, I'm right? a little
1: surprised that Key West in Florida had the first gay mayor.
0: I know. You're not. I don't know Florida. I'm, 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 I mean, Key West is a special place. You know. Yeah. You know Hemingway was there. Okay. Well, that's. <laughs> that's... <laughs> A topic for a different day. <laughs> Definitely a topic for a different day. But for folks that, that, that haven't been paying as much attention to, to, to the electoral cycle as we have here, you know, there is hundreds of cities across the country that are going to be electing their city council and their mayor. Some of the cities that we've been paying attention to are really big cities across the country, right? Big city mayors get a lot of attention. You mm-hmm. know, they're big executives. and some In some states, sometimes big city mayors are more important than the, than the actual governor.
1: And are actually on the <laughs> front lines against all the bullshit that's been happening, and particularly ta- with immigration.
0: With everything coming down the pipeline from the federal government, correct? And also for those of us that, you know, particularly for me and Gina, who care about electing more people of color to to office and non-traditional folks, it's also the best way to get these kinds of candidates in the door. So why do we care about Jane Castor? Why is she important? You tell me. Well, the reason why it's important is that, look, in a in, in a year like last year in Florida, where there were some disappointing losses with the, in the gubernatorial race, it's races like this in places like Tampa, where you start picking up vo- votes and organizing people for the next year, yeah. right? Jane Castor is someone that was a former police chief and won by won by a landslide, right? And we also have Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, right? She was in a very different kind of race. Mm. I mean, you know, Chicago politics is a bloody place, right? Mm. You know, you I think you had about 13 people running for mayor in Chicago and For folks that don't know, Rahm Emanuel, the former chief of staff for for President Obama, was the the mayor for Chicago and decided not to run in his third term after many, many, many controversies related to police brutality and also with closings of of public schools.
1: So do you actually know, that's actually not why he decided not to run again. So... Apparently, there's a ballot initiative that is for term limits for mayors in Chicago, and they like Rom staffed up, and then they did the polling, and they found out that he would basically run for re-election and not be able to hold the office. So he was just like, That's "All right, I'm good, I'm all set." They had like they had like paid staff, and everything had started happening, and then they figured out that it was just like a stairway to nowhere. <laughs> stairway, to nowhere. stairway to nowhere. But the thing about Lori is, you know, the internet was very excited about her. Twitter was very excited about her. She's a woman. First of color. black woman. You
0: know, she's gay. Woman, she's gay,
1: but she comes with baggage. Yeah, yeah. She comes with a lot of baggage. Mm-hmm. You know, she was leading the police board, and it delayed a decision that had to do with discipline for a police officer who murdered a black man Mm -hmm. or a black child and really was just sort of a part of the machine in a way that a lot of activists in Chicago really don't appreciate Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know I mm -hmm. think I think it was a really good lesson for me because I was retweeting the hell out of that I Mm -hmm. was like this is great you know we knew people who were working for her Mm -hmm. but the activists on the ground the people who were really fighting against police brutality weren't happy and so sometimes you know electeds will check a We'll check an identity box, and nine times out of ten, that is important, and it does... Go to their values, but at other times we have to be critical and hold them accountable. And
0: that's really the big lesson, you know, for, from these two races that I think that's important. I want to have the problem that as our democracy becomes more more representative, yeah. that we actually have to ask more more tougher questions about what kind of issues people really support, right? right? But I also think in the more important part, you know, this is the complexity of democracy for our listeners, right? We're not always going to get hundred percent in one candidate, um, and even as our democracy becomes more representative, we still have to understand that people have long histories before. They run for office, right? But I think for those of us that are thinking about this in the context of how are we rebuilding the country and how are we rebuilding our cities, as sort of a point of analysis, we need to have women at the forefront. And I think that's always been the bigger picture. You know, from someone like myself, gender parity is a big part of how we make our country work better. And you know, we shall see in time what folks like Jane Castor and Lori Lightfoot will do in their cities. But I think what's more promising is so many women that are running in big cities across the country, especially in the South, and how that and that really and how that opens up. Our ability to really prepare for the long term, you know, whether it's the presidential primary in 2020 or the work that needs to happen in the South period, right? So, so that's it on the on the on the on the municipal front for now.
1: Let's dab our little toe into Mayor Pete because let's do it. I have I have some feelings. Okay, so listen, like. Mayor Pete is out here running for president. You know, he ran for the DNC chair and stepped out. You know, he comes out. He's gay. He's cute. His husband is on Twitter and is wonderful. And there are a couple weeks there where I'm like, oh, my God, Mayor Pete. Like, he's great. He's run a town. He's done this whole thing. But he's a really problematic character. And the more and more we get to know him, the more disappointed I am. I mean, you know, I read an art, a really great article that was like, yeah, Mayor Pete was a great mayor based on the frameworks that improve the lives of white people. Like they say he's a really data driven mayor and he looks for very specific data results when it comes to, you know, housing enforcement or policing enforcement. But those don't take into the real life lives of people of color in his town. And so, you know, it's wonderful when people run for mayor and then run for higher office because the level of accountability and where their policies are and where their hearts are are really all out on the table more than a senator or more than a congresswoman. You know, being a mayor is a great way to build a bench, but your your shit's going to be out there for people to see.
0: To your point, he was actually asked about how he feels about sanctuary cities and whether he would make South Bend a sanctuary city. His response was, I believe in having a welcoming city and we are a welcoming city. Yuck. Yeah, and that's, and that's what it's about making sure we have values that ensure that when people come here they understand that they are welcomed yeah your values are great
1: but how about a bear?
0: Um, you know and at the end of the day you know I think he's a very representative of the of the part of the country that he's from but ultimately if you're running for president you're going to get judged for, for everything so you know I think at the end of the day these are very telling situations of um, you know who he as an executive would be and how he would kind of handle situations that he knows that in more liberal parts of the country he's going to you know those kinds of response are not going to be they're as... They're not going to cut it. They're not, they're not going to cut it. But I also think that that's exactly why, you know, um, some people are seeing him as like a young Biden, but without all the baggage, oh, you know?
1: Don't say uh, the B word.
0: You know, so it is what it is, you know, and I think, but I do think it does, you know, the bigger context for all of this is that, you know, we are big believers in that local local seats are the biggest pipeline to run for office. But I do want to point out to listeners that these are unusual times. The, the skip from mayor to president is not something I've seen before. That is a big jump. But I do think that... Mayor Pete's relevancy has to do with the mediocrity of some of the white men in the Democratic Party they're running. And I'm just going to just say that out loud. And very I direct.
1: agree. I feel like everyone thought Beto was going to be Mayor Pete and he is just not. And I think, you know, I also read an article that said Mayor Pete has been working very closely with some Clinton Obama bundlers, some like corporate donor types of people. I mean, which, look, he's been
0: in Massachusetts already. Right. That tells you something. Which
1: explains but it also explains why the media is so apt to cover him. You know, which is which political
0: is, funding ugh. matters. Remember, folks, right? You can engineer viability, and donors and political funding has a lot to do with it, yeah. right? So, and that's a great example as a contrast to our great um, senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. Yes. I think it's important for listeners to know, just in terms of like, you know, Gina has her own thoughts in terms of the presidential primary. I'm, I'm open, I'm, I haven't sided with anyone, and I just want to just say that. But I, you know, to me, Elizabeth Warren, someone that is so deep in policy, right? She is literally like setting the benchmark for policy. Like people are basically being asked while running for president, what do you think about Elizabeth Warren's platform? She's the, she's the benchmark for everyone, right? But yet someone like Mayor Pete, who literally has not even, doesn't even have a policy no page policy, on his website. Yeah. And was and when asked about it, his response was that, oh, voters in, in the public don't want to be drowned in policy. Yeah, you do. Yes, I do. I mean, I understand the grand scheme of things to win an election and win the middle. You do. That's not what voters want. But that's not who you're trying to get right now. Mm-hmm. You're getting activists and dedicated voters mm-hmm. and and new activists that have never been involved. Mm-hmm. that probably already care about policy or one issue. Mm-hmm. So we do want to hear about that stuff, actually. Yeah. And the fact that he's getting so much accolades right now while, you know, she's literally setting the standard for everyone, tells you everything about misogyny in our in our mainstream mm-hmm. and the power of political funding. Right. Because. She's still competitive. She, is she has she raised as much as Bernie and some of the other front runners? No, she has not, right? But she's running a long game. And I, I'm gonna continue to say that to folks. These next three months are gonna be critical to see what
1: she ends up doing, yeah. you know?
0: Because she has the biggest staff than she than any other um, candidate does.
1: There are so many organizers in Iowa for Elizabeth Warren. It is South Carolina. It is wild. The people
0: that delivered the Doug Jones race in uh in Alabama, most of that team is on the Warren team as well. Yeah. So, and, and my bias isn't necessarily a Massachusetts bias on this. It's actually a policy bias, right? Listen, I was not... It's a policy bias here.
1: I When this kicked off in January, I was... I had my issues with Elizabeth Warren. There were a couple of missteps that she took at the end yeah. of last year that I, I personally didn't Agreed. appreciate. But my God, is she wooing me? I am just... Policy platform after policy platform, just the student debt piece that also also included HBCU language as well, which I was just like, thank you. Okay, I'm here. Historically
0: black colleges for folks and universities for folks who don't know.
1: Yes. She's coming. I know who I'm not supporting. I can say that. (laughs) That's easier. Yeah. That's a lot easier. Like I know who I'm not with, (laughs) but I will say right now that Elizabeth Warren has captured my heart and it's hers to lose. Ooh, Oh, that that's is a, a, that is that's that's, a, that's like a, a two day ago re- revelation. I was gonna say that is a two day ago it revelation. Is, that's it is news recent. to me. My heart has not
0: been captured. Honestly,
1: <laughs> you know, I'm a little quicker to love than you are, Nellia. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie about that. But my
0: hot take right now, in terms of the candidates that I'm most paying attention to, for for different set of reasons, because of how they're running their campaigns, and in no particular order. But obviously, Elizabeth Warren, um, Mayor Pete, um, Kamala Harris, and Bernie Sanders. Those are my those are the folks that I'm the most paying attention to on the Democratic side.
1: You obviously like listening to powerful and inspiring stories, so we want to tell you about a show that highlights women who are trailblazers and generally kick ass wherever they are. Latina
0: to Latina, hosted by broadcast veteran Alicia Menendez, lets you listen in on intimate conversations with some of the most fascinating Latinas in the U.S. These women are changing the world in media, business, fashion, fitness, and so many other fields. From Hollywood power producers to chefs building culinary empires to activists redefining bravery. Guests on Latina to Latina are the types of women you'll come to admire.
1: So take a listen and subscribe to Latina to Latina wherever you listen to podcasts, and visit latinatulatina.com for more. You
0: want to change gears a little bit, you know, because dumpster trash is burning a little bit everywhere—not just, you know, you know, not just in terms, terms of dumpster a blaze.
1: fires are ablaze. Dumpster fires
0: are ablaze. You know, we wanted to start off with some good news, but also sharing some of the complexity of like, what it means to to have deep democracy at play. But there's also, you know, what we expected at the end of last cycle was. The number one question for me was, okay, what shape will the conservative backlash take on? Right. Because one thing that the Democrats don't ever do very well when we win nationally is pay attention to what happens locally. Right. So, Gina, tell me what's going on in Georgia. What's going on in Ohio, Kentucky? Why do we care?
1: They are taking away our abortions. The heartbeat bill passed in Georgia, Kentucky, and Ohio and is pending in Iowa. Basically what that means is when a fetal heartbeat is able to be registered, which usually is around six weeks, it's illegal to terminate a pregnancy. This is ridiculous for so many reasons. Medically, you know, most women don't even know they're pregnant until a couple of months in. You know, everyone's period is pretty irregular at this point. And it's a regulation on women's bodies, it's unconstitutional, it's, it's not good.
0: Yeah, I mean it continues to set up our our legal fight with the Supreme Court as it relates to to Roe versus Wade, you know, and I think on a, on a more practical level as it as it relates to the the, the upcoming presidential primary, it you know it energizes the the more conservative base, you know, and I think that that's the you know when we started this section, you know, this session talking about local elections and the opportunity that that creates to to organize our votes and organize our people. We need more than just elections, and we've always been talking about this on the show. It, we can't just be looking at elections as a way to talk to people about the fight because obviously the fight is happening in people's backyards in much more intimate and restrictive ways. And it's damning to me that most women— and and it's not because they don't know because— they don't have health insurance, and in some cases that might be the case. You just but don't know. You just don't know biologically. Like, it cannot be detected. Like, sometimes like,
1: your period just doesn't come for six weeks. Like, sometimes it comes every two weeks. So She does
0: what she wants. And I think this goes back to my point again about gender parity. It's in, it's important in policy making. It's important in decision-making. You know, and not just that, but, like, it continues to set up a conservative wall across the country in terms of, like, how much the, the stakes are against us right now,
1: right? Well, and I can speak to that, too. So I got my start in Ohio and I was in the state house when the Heartbeat Bill was up for its second vote. Twenty fifteen.
0: So we're just talking four years folks. Yeah.
1: So it's you know, they've been coming around the mountain on this for a while and I think it's really I think we really need to pay attention because The reason that this is passing in so many states and there's a push is because they have, you know, the right has been doing sustained activism on it. But it's because they know they have a court, the Supreme Court, that will affirm this decision. Yeah.
0: And and I think that the two key things that I want to pick up from your last comment is, you know, for our listeners, is that what the right has been able to do is is successfully contend legally and constitutionally, what the definition of personhood is. And not just that, but like also the definition of executive powers, right? And by challenging the definition of executive powers, you're thereby challenging the checks and balance system that that we all know
1: about. Yeah. Can you expand on that in the context of abortion? Yeah,
0: yeah. Let me expand on it a little bit more. So in the context of abortion, what I mean in the terms of contesting the definition of personhood is that they've been chipping away at this through different legislative battles for over 20 years. And it's about, you know, they say it's about protecting the sanctity of life. But that's why this is scary. This is part of a national movement. It started a few years ago, but now they've gotten the, the leg up with our, you know, Cheeto in office. And this is a culmination of it. And we have to understand, and this is the point that we always like to stress on this on the show. This is more than just the man and the people around him that are in the corner office right now. There is a whole movement of people that are galvanized around this. And it's goes back to like testing and contesting successfully the definition of personhood. And that's what they're doing. If what they're saying is that the sanctity of life is now tied to that six-week timeline, what they're saying is that our bodies, as women, as full-blown women that are on this earth living and breathing, have less rights. Than a fetus,
1: right? The way that abortion is being attacked so systematically and you know you gotta give it to them so well, we have to make sure that we're electing candidates who are calling out the nuances of abortion protection. You know, when you have a presidential candidate who is saying, I'm pro-choice, but I don't think that, you know, abortion should be able to be had up until you know the last minute, 28, 29 weeks, that is factually inaccurate. It's galvanizing points from the right you know, whether someone's running for president, running for mayor, running for something, this is this is roll call time. We are about to lose abortion. I think it's gonna to go to the Supreme Court and they're gonna affirm the six week ban. And although many women don't have access to abortion right now, it's gonna become wider scale, it's gonna become national and before that happens, we need to know where our municipal and our state governors and legislators are because the fight is going to go back to the states. It's not going to just be like it's over because of what the Supreme Court said. But abortion is a really important and nuanced issue and everybody needs to be up to date and on point about it.
0: And then we're going to continue to follow this and we're going to continue to go back to this for folks because it's extremely, extremely important. And similarly, in terms of like. Issues that that the right is using to to galvanize their base and to galvanize state legislatures is voter restrictions. So, what a surprise, right? The two the, the constituencies that came out in last year's election in historic numbers are coming for them, right? right. When it comes to abortions. It comes, up, it comes for women and people of color. And now when it comes to voter restrictions, it's for the entire American rising electorate, right? So like in places like Florida, in one case, yay, you know, 60-something percent of folks voted to restore the rights for, for felons to vote again. And now they want to institute a modern-day poll tax, folks. They want to say that in order for you to get your right back, you have to pay first. You know, our, can you explain? I I actually basically don't know what, what you're it is, about, it's yeah. by modern day poll taxes that so if you remember folks back in the day, you know, if you're black you'd have to actually pay a fee before you actually had a chance to vote. This would do something similar in that in order to fully restore your right to vote, you'd actually have to pay a fee before you actually would be allowed legally to go and, and, and vote in the state of Florida. So this basically undercuts exactly what oh the God. what the spirit of the of the ballot question last year was. And if folks remember, it passed with about 63, 64 yeah. of, percent of um of of Floridians. But mind you, the Democrat running for office lost.
1: Right, so there are Republicans for voted for so that. So there's
0: Republicans that voted for that, yeah. right? So I just want to just, like, you know, raise that, raise that point for folks. And the other piece of, of work that's happening is actually in Tennessee. And even though Tennessee is a state that some people would say, well, it's Tennessee, it's not important to 2020, but it's important to the South, right? And it's important to, to the outlook that we like to talk a little bit more here in deep democracy. I realize I haven't really talked about this much, and it's probably a good time to say this just, like, outright as part of our, our ways that we're looking at the country a little bit different than most people, is that, you know, as Democrats could spend the next, 50 years trying to recapture the white working class, whatever, you know, they have, they've been trying to unsuccessfully for a while, or we can actually go for the South and try to flip some states over time. Because the reality is, is that the majority of the black America lives in the South, but yet it's Republican.
1: Why? Because we're not talking to the black. To we, wanna, Look at Stacey Abrams. That's how she won, right? How she, how she won. How, yeah, yeah sorry. how she
0: won. How she won. But then they stole it. They but stole it from her. They cheated. They cheated. But um, in Tennessee, they have one of the lowest, lowest voter registration rates in the country, early voting rates in the country. I believe last year before the 2018 cycle, they were about 49th, right? They shot up in the top 10 in the country when our future guests helped register over 90,000 African-Americans to, to vote in Tennessee's election last year, right? And you know what, the Tennessee? Legislature has decided to go do now. They're scared. You know what they're doing, and and folks are fighting really hard on this. They want to make it a penalty of up to ten to I think it's between ten and fifteen thousand dollars for every time they submit a hundred voter registration voter registration forms that aren't completed. So listen to me one more time, folks. So if I'm an organization and I'm, my my goal is to register ten thousand people this year. Every time I submit 100 voter registration forms that aren't complete, I risk a $10,000 or $15,000 penalty. And I need folks to understand that sometimes people don't feel comfortable filling out a full-road voter registration, They're missing a, a part of the registration form. As someone that's supposed to be legally following the rules, they can't complete, they can't fill it out for the person, right? But it just goes to show, again, how Republicans are going out of their way to make it harder for Black people, for people of color, for women to vote. the citizenship question on the U.S. Census is like, you know, where we're going to see this like really come to a much bigger fight because it's yeah. so much it, it really does include everybody mm-hmm. in the fight in a much less fragmented way. And I think for our listeners, just for folks to have for context, the U.S. citizenship question generally has never that never asked a citizenship question. It an asterisk to it, actually. It did exist in the 1950s version of the U.S. Census. But it was removed after that, and it was taken into the ACS, which is the American Community Survey, mm-hmm. which is a smaller, longer version of the census that a smaller subset of the, Amer- of the American people receive. And I also want to remind people that it is in our Constitution— actually the reason why we even have the, the, a census count. Mm-hmm. We don't do many things for a very long time in this country, but we do the census. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that we actually do. It is in the census count that we have to enumerate how many people live across the country. Enumerate the, how many people. It doesn't say whether those people are citizens mm-hmm. whether they're or they're, anything like that. Enumerate them, mm-hmm. right? And some will say that the only reason why it's important is because of political representation, because Based on the count, you determine congressional seats, right? Mm-hmm. But not just that, you also determine billions of dollars of distribution from our federal budget, mm-hmm. right? So just wanted to give folks some um And the context background. there is
1: that the census for the first time is asking whether or not, you are a citizen. Exactly.
0: And that is and that's exactly what's not why some states are actually suing right now because they want to remove that question because research from internal to the from the census shows that including a citizenship questions reduces mm-hmm. the amount of people that are going to they're going to fill up the card. Yeah. It just it just does plain and simple. And if we don't have a real accurate count of how many people we have in the country, it's gonna be problematic in yeah. many, in many ways that we can Im- that we can imagine. And I think the other thing that people need to understand is that it so it not only does it determine federal funding, it determines how much we can ungridlock the current electoral map that we have. Redistricting gets determined by our final census count, right? Remember ten years ago when we did through this, Republicans just slammed us. They yeah. just, they. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. So if we're not able to even reverse that just a little bit by 2021, which is when redistricting happens, the year after the census, we're gonna be up shit's creek, y'all. I'm just telling you right now.
1: And the other piece of it, too, is that the census department itself is a hot freaking mess right now in terms of staffing and leadership when they I'm, don't even know which census to print they don't know it's like the admin operation this summer
0: this summer regional offices across the country are supposed to start receiving the physical format of the census so they can begin training so that the training um, training the troops basically through the fall so they can begin next year to actually go out and talk to people right they don't even know which version. They have two versions right now, one with the citizenship question and one without it. Beyond the 2020 primary, including the citizenship question in the census is going to have a detrimental and collateral impact across our country. And the fight is going to be not just at the federal level, not just at the state level, but it's going to be in your local municipality. Yep. And even and even more important in big cities where you know mayors are going to be very critical in trying to see how they can try to mitigate some of this impact because for a lot of cities and states, they don't even have the same kind of funding that they used to get in right. the past to collect to to count people. Right. To me, abortion, voter restriction, and the citizenship question on the census count are to me the three major issues right now that are coming down the pipeline in the in the upcoming Supreme Court and they're going to be making a decision between now and the summer on all these key issues, right? How do you
1: think they're going to land? I think they're going to land in the light of the conservatives. I do too.
0: They made a concerted effort at least 15 years ago to take over the judicial bench and that's what they've done successfully. They we they have reconfigured the minds of conservative judges who believe that looking the other way on executive powers is a way to rebalance the policymaking against democrats right this has become a complete tribal war and that's unfortunate the love of country and the and, the, and what that's supposed to mean it no longer exists no it just does not longer exists and
1: i i've never in the time that i've had political consciousness I have never seen successful bipartisanship, and it's actually something I don't really believe in at this point because I don't know how we negotiate with folks who don't think that I'm like a person, both because I'm woman and because I'm gay, you know, who don't think that everybody should have the right to vote, who don't think that immigrants should be able to seek asylum or even come into this country. How do you negotiate with that? I don't know. Well, I mean, I
0: think the reality is, is that this isn't a negotiation. I think this isn't a this isn't a to me, this isn't a valid policymaking process. Um, uh, and to be fair, both sides are responsible for different reasons. You know, at the end of the day, our policymaking process takes the interests of elites more than it does anyone else. I do think that these next few months are going to be very critical for the Democrats to figure out what their end game strategy is going to be as it relates to not just Congress, but also the primary. Right. So instead of dividing us or trying to say that we need to go one way or another, let's let all these people organize. Let them all it's just it's all good for us. At the end of the day, more people talking about progressive issues and trying to out progressive each other and organizing in parts of the country that they haven't. Is just it's good for us either way because between now and June when the Supreme Court recess Recesses and makes decisions on a few of these pending items, um, the citizenship question and also some abortion restriction because the Kentucky bill is already being reviewed by Circuit Judge Court already. Oh, really? Yes, it's already. It automatically the ACLU came out and was like, no, no, no. (laughs) No idea where that came from. Oh, wow. But the ACLU, I love them. You guys are always just like, you know, you guys just (laughs) shout out to the
1: ACLU. Shout out to you guys, killing
0: it with your amicus briefs and everything that you guys do, making sure that you know in the midst of all the insanity that, that we still got a sane voice. But yeah, man, this is where we're at. And, you know, bars trash swords, the Department of Justice. Beyonce's it,
1: great. That's something. You
0: know, I saw Homecoming twice, and I have to admit I went running yesterday. Mm-hmm. I watched it as yeah. I ran. Oh, yeah. I, I think I loved it even more right, while running.
1: Here's my hot take. I think we're living through a mozart type musical legend and i am upset that donald trump is the president and everything is a only we only get her because he's the president that is how i feel that is the balance of life that is how i feel i'm like listen this boat's going down the 60s but we got beyonce 1969
0: was one of the most volatile years in this country's history but also amazing
1: music yeah that's true that's true yeah Today on the podcast, we're so excited to have Clarissa Brooks. Clarissa is a recent Spelman grad and a community organizer and writer based in Atlanta. She has written about social justice for Teen Vogue, Complex, and Nylon. She worked as the assistant managing editor for Deadpan Hip Hop from 2016 to 2018. In 2017, Clarissa was the HBCU fellow for the Online News Association. She started organizing at age 18 and is currently a field organizer in Georgia for The Color of Change. Hey Clarissa. Hey how
2: are you? We
1: are so excited to have you on our podcast. You have an incredible resume all the work that you've written for Teen Vogue and Nylon and your you know additional organizing on campus and so we just wanted to start by talking about how you got into this work and what inspired you to become an activist.
2: Thanks so much for having me first of all I definitely um appreciate it and it means a lot to me and I'm super excited um about being on the show um so I joined a student organization my sophomore year of college called AUC Shut It Down and became a student organizer from there um and I say organizer because a lot of us that do community work um and like liberatory practice work specifically for black folks um just use the term organizer just because it's a bit more specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. activist can mean, like, a lot of things yeah. um, and nothing at the same time. I appreciate
0: uh, you making that distinction for our listeners, Clarissa, because I go on that soapbox often. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah,
2: because I think mean, people be like, oh, how is it, you know, how? what is activism to you? And I think for those of us in movement work, activism is a very, like, singular, you know, kind of being a figurehead, pushing different movements, but the folks on the ground doing the work are... Um, I think many of us call ourselves organizers.
1: Definitely. And how did you, you know, you have done a ton of campus organizing. Did you do any organizing before you got to college or did did you just sort of get there and, you know, see inequities you wanted to challenge or, you know, how did you, how did you start that journey?
2: Yeah, like my first action was in college, uh, my sophomore year. But I think I just, throughout high school and middle school, um, I'm an only child and my mother kind of, gave me the range to kind of do what I wanted to do. So I definitely always had that spirit and energy. Um, I was definitely the one arguing with my professors about how racist they were. Um, in high school, but I wasn't, I didn't necessarily have the language for it, so yeah. <laughs> it definitely was something that was going to happen, regardless of, you know, the org I was a part of, it was definitely, like, in my sphere from, from the beginning. I,
0: I appreciate you making that distinction but I, uh, between, like, organizer and activist, uh, but I, I'd like to take that a little bit deeper before we talk about some of the other other stuff that we have in front of us here. Um, you know, for, for those of us that have done this kind of work, that it makes a lot of sense to me when you say something like that, but for listeners that, that aren't as aware about what that means, where, where does that tradition come from? What is that? What is it that you're? What is it that you're trying to create that's different as an organizer than what activists are doing? And why is that important?
2: Yeah. So I think um, something that was made really clear when I started organizing was that organizing, activism, movement work in general, isn't about you as an individual. It's about your community. It's about getting Black folks free. Um, so I think, kind of, in this day and age of like the verified twitter activists or like folks that do work um not in community um or do things that are just really specific um i'm thinking of people that like do work but aren't attached to an organization Mm -hmm. or even like principled struggle it it just looks very differently when you're an organizer normally it means you have a responsibility to a community or collective and you do work for that and not just for yourself um and you have that process of, like, you check yourself, but also the folks around you mm-hmm. can check you and be like, hey, are you doing work for the right reasons? Mm-hmm. Um, and activism is more political figurehead, being and commentator folks who just kind of talk about issues and it's definitely still really important to like see a part of that discourse but if you're thinking about who is leading the march who is leading the direct action uh those folks are normally community organizers
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you, you mentioned you mentioned black freedom you know obviously that's something that you know if you have a conversation with a lot of different folks so they'll, they'll give you their own twist on it but what does that mean to you i, I really want to i'm really curious to hear hear more about that perspective
2: yeah that's definitely been like that always the biggest question as, like, organizers, like, what does freedom look like to you? So I think probably a few years ago, freedom just looked like, you know, I would probably give an answer like, you know, just to be free and do what you want. But um, now that I've become a bit more principled in my language and theory, and I have some amazing people I'm in community with who definitely will check me and make sure I have my theory together, uh, black freedom to me looks like a leftist world where black folks have all the resources that they need, where we're responsible for each other. Um, and where we don't have prisons, and yeah, where we're, we're Black people can like be our whole selves authentically, no matter who we are, um, and we can we can care and be there for each other.
0: You're a senior at Spellman, right? Yes. Yes, right. So I'm I'm curious to hear um, where where your principles are taking you right now outside of the classroom.
2: Yeah. So actually, right now I'm working with Baji around the Twenty One Savage situation. Can you and speak speak
0: to folks that might not know a little bit about what that situation is about?
2: Yes. So 21 Savage is um, a pretty well-known rapper from Atlanta. He was born in Dominica. I could be pronouncing that wrong, excuse me. But um, he was born in a Caribbean island that I believe is still a, US, a British Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. So he is considered a British national. So basically, I arrested him this past weekend for overstaying his visa from 2006 when he was like 12 years old. So it's just been, been really interesting trying to have conversations with black folks about citizenship and immigration because people don't see immigration as a black issue but it is absolutely a black issue um also considering just like it was a very targeted arrest Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so folks just trying to organize to get him free before his trial and all that good stuff
0: and how much do you think that that the the reason for his targeting has to do with him starting to you know sort of you know, release more more music that's more socially conscious because, you know, it's not that it's a new reality for him, but he's starting to mm-hmm. like actually release or, or talk about that a little bit more. Why, you know, do you think that's a coincidence?
2: I think, I think it's a part of it. I mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. think it's a part of the, you know, just the state and surveillance and the idea that, you know, anybody can be snatched up. That's been really scary to think about. Um, but I do think there's a connection to it because he's been doing a lot of programming around financial literacy and kind of doing like, that leftist work that people don't see it as, but you know, like getting kids free lunch, giving them backpacks, like providing those resources to black people, mm-hmm. um, that definitely makes the state pretty nervous. But I also think it's about like setting an example about, you know, we can snatch up whoever we want and making that clear. So I think, you know, we have to push back against that mm-hmm. and let ICE know that we're not going to go down without a fight. No.
1: no. Yes. So I, you know, in preparation for this interview, I read your article, non-voters have a valid criticism of the United States government. And I was really, really moved by your writing as somebody whose bread and butter is electoral politics. I think there were a lot of points in that article that the mainstream media doesn't pay attention to. Um, but because I am someone who is in electoral politics, I'm curious if you know do you foresee any candidates who you think could run the type of campaign that could make non voters vote you know is that a possibility or is it just you know the electoral system is is it perpetuates racism and you can't engage in it at all you know is there any way that activists like myself and Molnaya can put forth a campaign and a candidate who could win over those non-voters, or is it just, yeah, the system is broken and we don't want to mess with it?
2: So, I, I when I wrote the piece, um, it was coming from this place of so many organizers I know, mm-hmm. especially just Black and Brown young folks who identify as socialists and communists, just mm-hmm. don't vote for the fact that like a lot of us understand that, regardless, our citizenship in the system is pretty shaky, mm-hmm. um, and we have our really valid critiques of it, mm-hmm. and you know. When you're a leftist, all the way left, you're not interested in, like, reforming this system. You're interested in breaking it down
1: mm-hmm. and building up
2: new ones that give people free. But I'm thinking, like, if I'm thinking of a candidate um, as much, I'm also a Spelmanite, right? So <laughs> um I think for myself, I voted recently, but I didn't vote in 2016. But I think a candidate that would, like, get me to the polls and, like, excited about that would definitely be safety Abrams or AOC, even though we... I have my critiques of Abrams and her policies with Israel and I have my critiques of AOC with democratic socialism and how like that's a thing, but like not really a thing. So those are my critiques, but I think the way that they're moving and the way that they're like calling a thing a thing is something that we have not had in a very long time. Um, And just coming from a place of like authenticity Mm -hmm. is real and like not backing down. So the fact that Stacey Abrams was like, I never conceded is really important, especially in a state like Georgia, run by Republicans and white Democrats alike, um, and black Democrats who very much play into these politics of like electoral politics will save us. It's definitely been tough, but it's, it's funny because even as much as I am elected, I Did um, electoral politics work with color of change? So I'm on both sides. I'm like yeah, super ready to burn down the system. But also I have that understanding of like, okay, if black folks care about voting, then I will most definitely be that person getting folks registered.
0: Yeah, Ideology for some of us, um, I don't think for not for a lot of us, but I think for for folks of color and for, for black people in particular, ideology can be fluid. Right. In the sense that given the given a time and a moment, we can have a, certain, a particular opinion about something, but then shift us to another direction or another place and we might feel completely opposite. Right. But it's not that it's opposite. It's just that we live our lives in different ways and given and depending on the situation, we might feel differently about it. Right. So I'm curious to hear from you. Like, what do you think about that? Do you think that 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 that's like me just kind of, you know, doing a dance of words and you can say that if you believe that it won't offend me or do you actually think that that can be real? Can, can people's politics be fluid?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, in high school, I had very different politics. Like, I was a completely different person than I was. I wasn't queer identified. Um, I definitely didn't understand what leftism was. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, so Charlotte is very similar to Atlanta, um, and there's a very strong black middle class, black upper middle class um, that my mother wanted me to be a part of um, mm-hmm. by getting me to college because I was, I, I am the only person in my family to go to college so Mm -hmm, my politics mm -hmm. were definitely much more reformist much more liberal Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it is really fluid and also I think because of that I have a lot of sympathy not sympathy but I understand that work I used to be a summer fellow for students for education reform and as much as you know I understand communists and socialists like we need to burn everything down I also understand that me being in a magnet program is the reason why I got to college. And I understand that education reform is like a means to scraping out of poverty for a lot of black and brown folks mm-hmm. who are low income. So, um, I, and I, I think it goes, but I definitely agree with you. I think it goes back to what is the community need. So if black folks in Charlotte are like, look, My kids are, I want my kids to go to college, and I know that this magnet program is the only way that they can do that. I'm definitely going to be working to make sure more seats are opened, making sure there's more accessible language so other people can get their kids in the program. So um, it's really about what the community wants. And also being able to see, like, is there space to push people, you know? especially in elena with the housing mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. You, like people were so riled up to where we didn't have to push people people were ready to do they're like action. tell me what direction right. to go <laughs> right exactly so yeah. it's, it's those moments where it's like if people are ready let's do it but also i can do reform work and still push people i can do reform work and do like hey like you know if there's a food insecurity issue or even gentrification which is horrible here right like Every time I go somewhere and when I talk about the Super Bowl, um, <laughs> I did a panel last week for Adidas, and even on that panel, I was like, Yeah, Keisha Lance Bottom is not going to save us. I don't care if we have a mayor named Keisha, that does nothing for the fact that she also paid for extra judges to come into the city to arrest all the homeless people, right? Uh, you know, like, you wow. have to. Are you people.
0: kidding me? Is this what's like before, like in the quote unquote cleanup before you guys hosted the Super Bowl?
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Oh my god, yeah, that's... yeah. So she, she paid for, um, that's about that's... 20 or 30. Yeah, about twenty or thirty extra judges to come into the city to do um quality of life arrests across the city. Quality so of life, life arrest? Are you kidding me? Oh uh, yeah, no. Wow. That's serious, yeah. So all of all the homeless folks are I think locked up for a week or so. Oh my
1: god.
2: But for a lot of them, like the bail is like fifty dollars, thirty dollars. Um, and if you don't have that, which, you, you know, let's vote. be
0: honest for a lot of them. That's not a, that's not a possibility. Yeah. Um, right.
2: So a so, lot of folks are trying to do court watch. To I, like, I'm
1: not ready to, I'm not, bills. I'm not ready to move past this topic. So wait, so was yeah. it government money that with like, like the city of Atlanta money that she used to do that? Or how did, how was it paid for? And talk about like, yeah. what was the, well, was, so yeah. So
2: Atlanta's interesting. So like it, it, Atlanta cares a lot about industry and appearance. So mm-hmm. things like, adult entertainment you know like they allowed people to get more permits to do adult entertainment for the past week for the super bowl but at the same time you know they made this campaign about sexual sex trafficking but like really did no actual efforts to help or fix that and also they targeted sex workers and not people who Mm are being sex trafficked there's a very big difference between that right
0: Yes, a so very big way, difference, especially on, on, yeah. uh, when you look at it from racial, from a racial alliance perspective. Exactly, so, uh, and especially
2: with age, right? Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of the folks they arrested were women who were 25, 26, people who are sex workers and have that agency and say that, um, but they weren't picking up, like, actual girls and women and children who were being sex trafficked. Mm-hmm. But in that way, so, like, the the city will give money for people to do those permits, and in that way, they'll use other money to bring in extra judges to cover quality of life arrests and pay and stay arrests. Um, so, like, basically, pay and say is like if you, it's like a loitering charge, misdemeanor. So, uh, they brought in extra judges for that. I don't know the specifics on how they got them in, but I do know that they brought in like 20 different judges yeah. just to make sure that all of it was processed before the Super Bowl. Wow. Yeah. That's so, it's things like that to where it's like, when people are like, you know, we got Keisha, we've got, a black city council. We've got all this great representation. It's like, yeah, that's true. But also, like, what are they doing? What what actions are they doing that, mm-hmm. like, show us that they're not for black people? Yeah. So those are moments where you have to push back. But I definitely think that the little, you know, baby liberal inside of me is always there, willing and ready to help with whatever effort I can yeah, So it's definitely sure. fluid.
0: Well, I mean, I think as I'm listening to you, I think something that, that's a takeaway for me is the streak that's the that, that that's permanent and isn't fluid um, in you is the, the the sense of accountability, right? You know, because ultimately it's about holding systems and people accountable, even if they look like you sometimes, right? Um, and I think that that's a very powerful, it's a very powerful perspective because let's be honest, us is not what we've what we you know how most of us were raised, right? And I'm curious to. Um, you know, you shared a little bit about your, you know, sort of what led you to your your journey of like in service or in organizing. Um, but how has that, how have you been able to reconcile that with your campus life, right? Especially at a school at Spelman, right? You know, as someone that, you know, went to a, what's considered a, a Little Ivy League school, you know, you, you come across different forms of people. And it's sometimes surprising what they think. So I'm just curious to hear a little bit from you. How has it been um, managing both you know a student load and an organizer load for these last several years, right? It's just, you know, first of all, deep respect on my part from just managing all of that. Um, but also just want to hear more about like how has it been for you personally?
2: Yeah, it's definitely, um so I was supposed to graduate last year. Mm-hmm. So I'm a fifth year senior, which in a lot of ways, I've kind of sacrificed, I mean, a lot of us have. so a lot of us who are in a to shut it down have like mm-hmm. sacrificed like a normal campus life. You know, so, like, a lot of girls who graduate from Spelman or just people in general leave Spelman, like, feeling like, oh, my God, I love this school. I feel so safe here. Um, And, like, I don't feel that way. Hmm. You know, like, there's administrators who see me on campus and they're like, that's Clarissa, you know, or that's Jill or that's, you know, like, they know who the the activists are. So there are times where I love Spelman deeply and there are also times where, like, I absolutely hate it because Hmm. it is so elitist. Um, and, you know, being a poor black girl from Charlotte, North Carolina, you know, like Bellman is a hard place to navigate, but especially because I didn't grow up around any type of money mm-hmm. and trying to understand, you know, like the people, that ha- people that have this, people who go to Martha's Vineyard for spring break or Miami. Like those are things that I just never had access to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of things in my organizing that, especially around academia, like there were terms and words that I didn't know, but I had lived. You know, mm-hmm. like I didn't know what intersectionality was, but I had lived it my whole life. I didn't know what principal struggle was, but I was living it throughout my life. So mm-hmm. things like that to where it's like I have a I'm always trying to make sure the things I do, I can explain to my mother or I can explain to my family mm-hmm. because that's who I do work for, even if my mother constantly thinks. I'm going to go to jail. Um,
0: (laughs) She's going to think that regardless. No matter what. No matter what. So, you know, they're
2: moms. (laughs) No, literally. Um, But yeah, but I want to do work to where like I can explain it to the people that I grew up with back home. But yeah, it's definitely tough. And I definitely, there are times where I feel guilt about being the first one in college and being able to be in these spaces and do these things because my cousins haven't. But yeah, it's definitely a back and forth. But I try to, I don't know. I try to think that somewhere in the universe that balances out or like somehow I'll be able to like take this back home and like help folks in like a more direct way.
1: For sure. Can you tell us more about AUC Shut It Down and sort of the work that you did in 2016 and the work that you've done since then?
2: I joined AUC Shut It Down in 2015. Um, It was my sophomore year of college. I went to a few meetings. I was like, this is it. I found a place to complain out loud. It's super lit. Everyone there was really great and amazing and really, like, serious about activism. Um, and I came in, like, I kind of still am, but I definitely came into to A to shut it down. Like, let's burn down the school. Mm-hmm. Let's burn down every building. Let's do it right now. Um, and they were like, well, that's illegal, so we can't do that. Um, <laughs> but um, the first, literally the first action I ever did was Hillary for Who. Mm-hmm. So, Hillary for Who was a direct action that we did against Hillary Clinton when she came to Atlanta in October of 2015. We interrupted her. We got yelled at by John Lewis and Andrew Young um, and our school principals. um, Not principals, but presidents. You shattered
0: respectability politics with that one. Yeah, you did. I'm smiling over here.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but, I mean, we got booed out, like, by the entire school. The band played us out. Like, it was not a fun moment. Wow. Wow. in the sense of, like, having a room of Black people be like, oh, we don't agree with you, it was definitely really tough. And also just the surveillance act, aspect of it, of, you know, Hillary Clinton at the time, uh, she wasn't the Secretary of State, but she was still the former Secretary of State, meaning she still had Secret Service and stuff like that. So being taken out of a room by Secret Service definitely as an organizer makes you... It, it's definitely a trauma. Um yeah. It's, yeah, it's like, I try to not, like, glamorize it but um a lot of us thought we were gonna die and like not in a joking sense but in the sense of like the u.s government has really killed a lot of organizers and activists so um it was definitely a moment where we didn't know what was going to happen uh thankfully you know they just kicked us out but in that moment it was really scary and that was my that was my first direct action ever in my life um you came in hot (laughs) yes it did not stop for quite a time yeah um (laughs) So, yeah, so from Hillary, we had a lot of pushback from students. Students did not like us mm-hmm. at all. Like, we had a talk talkback. Um, we almost got in a fight with somebody. Like, it was really intense. Like, students really did not understand why we did it, and they didn't understand why we would go up against, the, in their eyes, the only viable candidate. So it was definitely tough. And then because... Of that, um, we went really strong around everything on campus and in our community for, like, three years straight. So, sexual violence, gentrification, police brutality. I mean, it's, like, literally, like, all of us did work for three years straight. And then this past, like, year, we just stopped um, mm. because we are all really burnt out. Um, mm. You know, like, we... It's funny, when I apply for jobs, they're like, oh, you're too young, you know, you don't have a lot of experience, and I'm just like, okay, sure. Um, it's like, how about you interview me and talk to me yeah, for right. 15 exactly, minutes so exactly, that you can understand right?
0: exactly what's behind this face and this body, right? Exactly.
2: <laughs> um, but yeah, but that the, the beautiful part is we have a lot of really great experience. We've organized rallies and vigils and direct actions, martial trainings. Um, uh, we host a yearly organizing conference in Atlanta, too, so we've... Have done a lot, um, in a really short amount of time. Um, so, and our brains were like old heads with a lot of trauma. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to meet Angela Davis when she came to Stillman. We were so hyped. That's um, amazing. Like, yeah. yeah, like the entire speech, we were just screaming. We were like, yes, comrade. Like, like, barely, barely the <laughs> comrade. Right um, so yeah, she was, that was, that was an amazing experience for us because, you know, she like has lived the practice that, you know, that we talk about um and been through the things that we've experienced in like much bigger more visible ways so yeah so we've done a lot in those three years a lot of us are transitioning into you know i graduate this year jill graduate so i think um i think only one person in ACID has graduated and that's the other part of like campus organizing and even folks from acu resist who took over their admin building a lot of us don't make it through school because organizing is so stressful and so like it takes a lot out of you to where like it becomes the only thing you do. Um and it's hard to you know, do you want to do your homework or do you want to organize a <laughs> yeah. rally? I hear so, that. I hear that. <laughs> this, yeah, so at this point it's like myself and a few others are just trying to make sure we graduate this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you that's know, that's especially.
0: important. But you did find the time though to 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 hold Sean King accountable.
2: Yes, yeah, I did. <laughs> I did, I did, I did. Um, um so what made and you that was like not even on purpose so the tweet just 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 wrote itself (laughs) exactly i was like i have much better taste
1: so yeah tell the tell the if you could talk to talk a little bit about that um speak to what happened there and sort of you know what preceded your tweet and then what happened following that just from your side of the story i would love to hear it
2: yeah so basically that's a long time ago yeah so basically in december Mm -hmm. um myself and a few other former members of ACE Shut It Down had a letter-writing party. Eva Dickerson is the one that hosted it. Um, had a letter-writing party for Centoria Brown, and then we got connected with the students who were organizing around her in Nashville. Um, mm-hmm. One of them used to be in ACES, so we automatically were like, cool, we're going to help with this. So from there, myself um, and others were helping out with some communication stuff, just like making the Twitter town hall, just like really small things. And so being on that communications team, I knew who was on the team and who wasn't. And I saw that Sean King tweeted about Centoya Brown. Um, he was like, you know, donate here to get Centoya Brown free. And it was a link to his website. Mm. Um, and so I, that was the day of her commutation. I think it was before he knew that she was getting commutated. A few hours later, the news broke and the tweet was gone. But I remember tweeting out, like, you know, like if he's raising money for her, like who's who's checking that? Who's holding him accountable for that? Yeah. Um and so that's just a tweet that really, you know, like I was saying, principal struggle, like that's a part of it. If you say you're an organizer, if you say you care about black folks, you should be able to be held accountable as well. Yeah. And so he tweeted out, I think, later in the week that he was going to start suing people for spreading lies about him. Um, I'm also, a, you know, a college student working trying to graduate. So I was like, ooh, don't need the smoke. <laughs> right. And also at the time, like I had 5,000 followers. I knew I was not. I just knew I wasn't in any danger because I've I've seen folks make threats and threats and threats about this person, mm-hmm. and so that next Monday he emailed me basically saying, you know, if you don't take down this tweet and apologize publicly, I'm going to sue you. And I just knew that wasn't going to happen um, because <laughs> I had I had already deleted the tweet right of my own volition, yeah. Um, and also, you know, what I said was true, and I still and true to that statement of he needs to be held accountable for the money that he's raised oh, yeah. um, and so from there it kind of started this weird firestorm of him posting me on our social medias um, we basically had some email communication and the next day he was like if you don't publicly apologize I'm gonna seek legal action and I emailed him back and was like do it <laughs> that's so like, awesome because oh, you man. know it's like because I had talked to enough lawyers who were like this would be a three year long process like yeah we just it's not worth it to go up against you for one tweet that's not even there anymore. Um, So I don't understand why he still wanted to
1: sue after you deleted the tweet. Like, what... Well, because,
2: I mean, it wasn't really about the tweet. It was about getting people to bend to his will. Yeah,
0: Um, and honestly, that was also during that era where I feel like, you know, I just think that I think at the time that you did that, more and more people were also starting to come out on Sean King and just being like, you know, and I think he just was like on this bent streak of like, I'm gonna sue everybody. Yeah. You know? Yeah, Yeah. It's like, I'm gonna sue you, I'm gonna Sue you, <laughs> and I'm to so sue you too. Um, but you know what? I really appreciate about not, but not just not just the Sean King story, but everything that you've been sharing with us, Clarissa, is that, is that we, if we're gonna be in this work for the long haul, we have to be able to hold each other accountable, even if mm-hmm. we're quote unquote on the same side, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because just because we're, you know, saying we're in the fight for freedom together, or in the fight for a better democracy, however you want to like, you know, you know, define your fight, um, if we if we don't hold each other accountable, then we're just making the same mistakes. Right. Um, yes. and, we, and we know the people that have been excluded in the past from this kind of work. So, like, I just think I just want to commend you for the kind of accountability that you're you're putting forth, because honestly, it's it keeps people honest mm-hmm. and we all need to be kept honest, no matter what side you're on. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the other part is like I have been in those spaces where like people aren't held accountable and things get weird and the power dynamics get shifty. Um and I also think it's been interesting to see, like, this rise of, like, the Twitter activists who can, like, monetize themselves and monetize, you know, like,
1: yeah,
2: just being this figure for the movement. But, like, nobody has done work with them, mm-hmm. you nope. know, or they've done one thing and then they pop off from there. Yeah. Um, but for those of us who, like, aren't interested in visibility or interested in monetizing ourselves, it, it's shifty. It's shifty to be like, oh pay me $10,000 to those speak at your school about work that, like, I actually didn't do. Yeah. You know, it's like, if we really care about freedom, then that means we have to, you know, be aware that capitalism shows up everywhere, mm-hmm. um, and it has eaten up the Black Lives Matter movement in ways that are, like, horrendous. Um, so we can't let people keep doing that, even if they are Black, even if they say that. Therefore, black people.
1: Yeah. Can you talk more about that, about capitalism eating the Black Lives Matter movement?
0: And not just the Black Lives Matter movement, all movements, honestly. Social
1: movements in general. everything (laughs) in
2: life. But I think it created this rise of, you know, the Twitter activists or people that can, um, yeah, I mean, that part too, like the, I mean, the nonprofit industrial, all of it, just in the sense of like, we can make social movements profitable. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we see this with like Nike ads and Kaepernick, in um, mm-hmm. the idea that you can make social justice a commodity, when in reality, like, the whole point of fighting for freedom is to fight for the ending of capitalism. Um, so to see, you know, people like Sean King, who every time he does something, money is attached to it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, the North Star, hey, I'm making a publication, but you can only get a publication if you're a member and you have to pay for it, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's things like that to where it's like, I don't know anyone that has done work with John King. You know, like, I, and things like that to where, like, if I think the biggest part of organizing work is people knowing you and trusting you and knowing that your principles are solid and that your work is solid. Um, And the fact that in this process, I was reaching out to people and they were like, no, he doesn't work with anybody. Yeah. You know, it's it's things like that where it doesn't check out. It it doesn't pass the smell test. um, And it shows that he worked, in his own capacity Mm -hmm. um, and doesn't want to work in community because he wouldn't be able to monetize it. And people would hold him accountable Mm -hmm. to the things that he says and says and does and all those things.
1: Yeah. It's really, it's really just so tough when, you know, people like you and people who are in this work to just for the betterment of the community and for the advancement of folks and to have, you know, with Twitter, just Twitter catapults the people who are doing the least amount of work. It feels like sometimes, and just, you know, who have the most followers, it's just, it's, it's frustrating. And that's it. Let's
0: also let's be honest too. You know, the obvious part about it too sometimes. I don't know if it's obvious. I mean, strike that word. Um, is that they fit the the fit the better marketing strategy too sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Let's be yeah. honest, right? Yeah. I think that's something absolutely. that it's hard for us to admit sometimes, mm-hmm. right? But that is very much a part of it, unfortunately. Um Yeah. But I don't well, no. no yeah. continue continue, I'm sorry.
2: No, I mean I was, I mean, especially being in Atlanta, Atlanta's like hmm.
1: Girl. The home
2: of MLK, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. people, especially going to Selman and being next to house, like you could sneeze and somebody could pull out. And yeah, it's fold. like the
0: unofficial like Black Wall Street of the country.
2: Yeah. You know? Absolutely, like no yeah. you we know. So it, it's like right.
0: Yeah.
2: So it's it's super interesting in that way of seeing like people want another civil rights movement, mm-hmm. which really means they want another black cishet man mm-hmm. lead the movement and tell us what black people should be doing mm-hmm. um, Sis, let him know and even in like <laughs> in, even in that way like we decide what we want to see as us and what we don't like he was an energy capitalist yeah right like he specifically said i want to work for poor people and get them free um and he worked around you know rent gouging and things like that so mm-hmm. those are the parts where like black wall street of atlanta is like ooh, actually i don't want to be into and, and also and, and, be, get this and
0: people forget about the fact that you know because unfortunately he you know he was taken away from us but you know mlk was becoming more more you know much more radical towards his end of oh, his absolutely. life yeah you know and that's also
2: a, right no, you no, Also we, losing his mind too well, right like i mean no. wouldn't you <laughs> i mean who wouldn't who right? wouldn't you like, know so it's things like that to where it's like we don't like to be honest about who we think is marketable. Like most of the people, if I'm, when I go to spaces, um, most of the people on the front lines are black queer folks. Yeah. Know? Like black queer folks, black women, black trans folks. Um, and those are not marketable to a Wells Fargo. Those are marketable to a Bank of America, to a Nike. Um, they would much rather it be someone who is conventionally attractive, skinny, you know, nice to look at, Um, Mm someone they can put on an ad. Mm -hmm. Um, And most times that is not the people on the front line, Mm -hmm. those of us who are differently abled and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it makes complete sense why there are Twitter activists and why there are blue check activists and, you know, all those things. But at the same time, it also means that those of us who actually do the work have to roll up and be like, hey, so glad you got that Wells Fargo check, but also what are you doing for the community, right? Oh, like, <laughs> yes, Clarissa.
1: Yes, Clarissa. You
0: that's know, what I'm talking that, about. Don't just let them wrangle out there with their with their With their check by themselves, checks. Right. right their Wells Fargo checks.
2: It's definitely, I mean, it's tough. Because a part of it is, like, you don't want to come off as, of, like, oh, I wish I had that check. Because that's not even the goal of the mm-hmm. mission. It's about the fact that, okay, if you have this visibility, like, do something with it. Push some orgs. Like, there are Black young folks working. There are Black trans folks working, like, I don't get how most of these people aren't pushing people doing actual work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just don't get that. Like, if you have that visibility, why not use it in the way that you can? But mm-hmm. most of them are like, mm, I'm only going to push things that I can get money off of or things that I prioritize and decide are important. So. Yeah.
0: I mean, and the truth, it goes it goes back to one of the things you said in, in, the, in the article in Team Vogue, that it's about people having the power. And the reality is, is that just because you're marketable doesn't mean you have any power. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And, 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 right. So, um, so I'm curious. What's um, What's next? Right. Like, obviously, you need to graduate because mm-hmm. I'm sure yes. if you didn't, your your mom have and your graduate. and your family would have a huge problem with
2: that. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother has worked too hard. She has that. worked I'm way really too, hard. To too hard. hard. <laughs> you
0: cannot break her heart in that way. I'm like, you cannot. Exactly. I'm like, at this point, <laughs> the, the degree is for her. So that is I understand, sis.
2: <laughs> um, but so, what's next? Yes, graduating. Yeah. Um, I I dipped my toe into the nonprofit sector. Um, and it was interesting. So right now I'm kind of like still on the market, finding a place to put myself. Uh, Cause I have a lot of experience and like a lot of things that I've done, but I'm also 23. So um, a lot of times I'm getting, you know, oh, you're too young, you don't have the experience. Um, so just trying to find out what that means for me um, and also doing things for myself. Um, and now that I do have this uncomfortable amount of disability, Navigating that in the best way that I can and uplifting people and making sure people see it. Like, so it's even with the Sean King stuff, I went from like 5,000 followers to like (laughs) 20,000. That's crazy. Um, Wow. And like, right in like a few days. So, really, I've just been trying to keep my anxiety in check, Mm -hmm. if I'm being honest. And you know, when people reach out and they're like, hey, can you boost this? I have absolutely no problem doing that Mm -hmm. um, because why not? And also just, going back to what makes me happy outside of organizing i freelance right but i also love talking about music and culture so i have a podcast coming out soon and things like that so that is the goal for me is to keep doing things that i love Mm -hmm. um and stay in that purpose and yeah kind of create the path for myself because you know someone doesn't it's a finishing school so like they don't really want you to be an activist (laughs) or an organizer uh, they want you to be a doctor or a lawyer So uh, creating that path for myself and for the rest of us who were in it has been interesting to like carve out a space to be an organizer and like be able to pay your bills Mm -hmm. um, and not hate your job has been weird, but we're all figuring it out.
1: So a couple, couple last questions, one for me and one for Monelia. So you, like you just said, I mean, you are working your ass off for so many awesome causes and just doing the work. What do you do to take care of yourself? You know, you said you like writing, but, like, what are the things that you do to recharge and, and resettle?
2: Yeah, that's always, whew, that's always a tough one because I did a panel and they were like, what does balance look like to you? And, like, honestly, as an organizer, it, it really isn't balanced mm-hmm. because you feel this guilt for not doing movement work. Even though you know the community, like, people are going to do the work regardless, you still feel guilt because people reach out and be like, hey, this is happening are you doing this? And then when you're in it, it's everything that you do. And it's hard to do anything else. So for me, it, it's been about prioritizing what I can and saying no to things. Mm-hmm. Um, and my partner is much better at boundaries than me. I'll definitely <laughs> sign up for 20,000 projects and be like, yeah, no, I have time. <laughs> it. Um, and then like lose my mind when I'm exhausted. So my partner is definitely helping me figure out my own boundaries and then just creating more time by myself where I can sit with myself and just watch Netflix. I'm obsessed with candles, so I buy about three candles a week. Yes. Um, but yeah, just things like that, like journaling, you know, hopefully if I can get a job sometime soon, this good therapy will come in mm-hmm. too. But yeah, just centering myself and doing things that make me happy. Um, I also do waitlisting, which kind of helps with my own like association, things like that. So oh, man, um, yeah, so things like that to where it's, what can I do to feel embodied and, like, I'm doing things for myself and not thinking about all the systems around me? Yeah. Um, helps a lot. But it's definitely not some bubble bath, put a face mask on. Yeah. Uh, if I'm putting a face mask on, it's because my skin... Is ready to fight me. Um, Not for self care.
1: (laughs) It's so real. Also, uh, you probably know this, but the TJ Maxx candle section is like peak. Oh my god, six (laughs) dollars for a giant ass candle. It is. It is. (laughs) It's bigger than your face. Bigger than your face.
2: Yes. My partner got me a candle for Christmas, um, and I think I used it in like three days. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I know it's the worst. Right. Um, yeah, but it's small stuff like that. It's like if my room can just smell nice, yeah, and I can drink this good tea, then maybe the world isn't gonna burn down today.
0: <laughs> so usually, especially in like organizer or in activist spaces, they always like to say, "What's your call to action?" Mm. That's not my question. Uh, okay. So I use it as a reference <laughs> because just because I realize that it's important before I ask that, before I ask this question. So what I am gonna ask you instead is, "What is your call to joy and justice?" Mm. You know, for too long in this work, I I believe that those two things really didn't coexist, right? That I had Mm -hmm. to pick one over the other, right? Like, justice is what I did for work, and joy is what I found outside of it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But the reality is that that didn't make me really happy as a person, right? So, um, uh, and I've been inspired by a lot of of folks, but in particular, like, Black women last year um, in doing this work, um, not just here in Massachusetts, where I'm from, but in other parts of the country. So I just want to ask all the people that are coming on our show, what is your call to joy and justice?
2: Ooh, the first thing I thought of was my friend group, right? Like, the folks that I organize with are also, like, my chosen family. So, like, my calls to joy and justice is always trying to get people to realize. I mean, I come from a family where, like, there's a lot of trauma and stuff. So, having people that I call family that I choose is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for me, it looks like Sunday dinners when we can get everybody in the room. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, things like that. Like, we have a really self friend group. And those are moments where I'm like, damn, I, I am living in the world that I want for everyone else. You know, all black queer folks, black trans folks who do movement work, who are artists and writers and everything under the sun. Um, so, like, when I'm in those moments where we're eating Sunday dinner, normally vegan, even though I am not vegan. But well, you are during I, Sunday I, dinner. I am, yes. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah. But, yeah, that feels like that is my call to joy and justice is for people to create that for themselves and to like fight for it Um, and it's really hard like telling my mother I was queer like she definitely still probably doesn't believe me all the way Mm -hmm. Um, but it's something that I fight for and something that's really important to me and I know that's not feasible or safe for everyone but um, my call to joy justice is to create that in whatever way you can.
0: Ooh, Clarissa, oh, Clarissa, well, gorgeous. I just really want to thank you, you know, for really, for, for, for being on the, on the podcast with us today. And only, you know, my only last words are just keep on being your badass, authentic self. Yeah. yeah. so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this month. Don't forget to subscribe to Deep Democracy on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen so you won't miss our next episode. Deep Democracy is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. Our producer, Amy Westervelt. Our editor is Katie Ross. Our theme song is We Can't Slow Down by Origami Pigeon. Our cover art was drawn by Alejandra Ballesteros. Thanks for listening. See you next time.